Well, good morning, church. So all our lives, he has been faithful. I love that song. I love that truth. From the moment that I wake up to the moment I lay my head, from the moment of my conception, from the moment of my death, all my life, he has been faithful to me. All our lives, he's been faithful to you. For the past two weeks, we've been talking about faithfulness, what that is, what that is, why it matters to us. And we can understand why God's faithfulness to us matters. It matters in the sense that he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty that we could not pay so that we could be in right relationship with him once again. That's God's faithfulness to us to not leave us in our sin. But we've been talking about what our faithfulness is to him for what he's done. But what it is, why it matters. Last week we talked about the longevity of faithfulness. How the mark of a Christian is, is, the, is the length of time that we go throughout this life continuing to be faithful. That it starts today and it can continue tomorrow and so on and so on and so on. But what I want to do this morning as we talk about faithfulness is I want to talk about what we're meant to be, what we're supposed to be faithful to. What is this faithfulness actually supposed to look like? But where I want to start this morning with that is I want to consider first our purpose. When we start thinking about what we're supposed to be faithful to, right, the answer to that is the Lord. If you're a Christian in here, if you've grown up in church, if you've been with us for several years, I think we've all come to that understanding that the thing that we're supposed to be faithful to, namely, first and foremost, is the Lord. But I want to talk about our purpose and how we're supposed to be faithful to that purpose. But first, what is that purpose? Psalm 67, 3, the psalmist says this. He says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 46, 10, he says, be still and know that I am God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 96, 1 through 3, he says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all people. Psalm 156 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus, uh, uh, at the triumphal entry, as he's entering Jerusalem, and, and all the people and his disciples and others are there, and they're praising him as he's entering Jerusalem. And the Pharisees see this, and they they, they tell Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus tells them in response, he says, if they are silent, even the stones will cry out. The thing that we are here for, church, according to these examples in God's word there over, the reason why we exist is to praise, exalt, and glorify our creator. From the moment we wake up to the moment we lay our head, church, our purpose is to glorify and exalt God. That is our purpose. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. That is going to be the frame with which we should put all of our lives. That's the frame that we are going to use even this morning as we talk about what we're supposed to be faithful to. Namely, God, who he is, but namely our purpose the reason God created everything was so that he may be exalted and glorified in everything. 
and buy everything. And us being part of that creation, then our purpose is to do that. Y'all see that picture? There's our frame. We are created to glorify and exalt God. Now, the question is, what does that look like for our lives? What is our faithfulness? How do we purpose our faithfulness in our lives? Right? In all the different areas of our lives. You know, Brandon, he spoke earlier. We have different areas of our lives. We compartmentalize our lives in many ways. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. But we have very, I almost said few, very many um, areas of our life. Right? We need to be faithful in our parenting. We need to be faithful with our time. We need to be faithful with our resources. We need to be faithful with our body. We need to be faithful with our talents. We need to be faithful with many different things. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be faithful in those areas. But this morning, what I want to talk about is how to be and why we should be faithful in the one thing that we spend the majority of our lives in. Can you think of that? what that might be? The one thing that you and I do as adults, mind you, some of the younger generation is in here as well, but as adults, when we grow up, the majority of our time is spent doing work. But I believe there's a problem that we have in, in doing some study and some research. I've come to understand that there's a problem in the American church where what we have done is we've taught and we equip people to be faithful on a Sunday, but not faithful on a Monday. Because the problem is, is we've, 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 as we've said, we've compartmentalized our lives. And I believe that the Christian, the average Christian has three lives that they live. And I can be guilty, and I have been guilty of this, but has three lives. One, you have your work life. Then you have your leisure life, your hobbies, your family, the things that you enjoy doing. And then you have your church life. And we base our life around these three compartments. Work, we have to do. We go to work. But what's the reason for our work? For most of us in here, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand, but for most of us in here and even me at some points in my life, the reason I go to work is to get income, to earn a wage. And what does that wage get me? It gets me this life. And the problem with that is, is when we are about work, the majority of our life is spent doing work. If we get things out of place, we forget our purpose and we don't even understand what our purpose is, then our purpose for our work becomes about who? Ourselves. For whatever reason, right, we may put money up here and this is where idolization begins to get involved in this compartment of our lives. We work to earn money. And that is our, if that's our end goal, everything that we do will drive us to that point. If it's to make a name for ourselves, to be better than the competition, to maintain a certain bottom, bottom line, to maintain, maintain solvency in some reason, in some way with our businesses. But if the goal is to make money or make a name for ourselves, we got things out of place. And somewhere along the way in this compartment of our lives, we will sell out what we know to be right, what we know to be moral or ethical to maintain that which we have at the top of it but all of it to the end of having this life. And then we have our church life over here. And our church life is faithful on a Sunday morning. And that's what we've created in many ways. Is we give of the hour on a Sunday morning to come, and I'm not listing what we do. What we do is important. Corporate gathering is important within the word of God. But the problem that we have, and many of you could probably recognize, and I know I have, is when this 
area of our life, our church life, begins to bleed over into this area, all of a sudden we begin to see a problem. Words like burnout begin to get thrown around. And I'm not lessening the impact of that. I'm not saying that that does not exist. But what I'm saying is, if we're not careful, what we will do when this area of our life that's on a Sunday, as it pertains to church, bleeds into this leisure life, there's all of a sudden a problem. And what gets pushed? The problem is never our leisure time. The problem is our church time. And it gets pushed back to here. Does your church life ever bleed into your work life? No, because you maintain this. Whatever you have to do to maintain this so that you can have this and this over here, yeah, I do that on a Sunday. But I have the reason why. I believe that I have the reason why. And I believe the Word of God helps us come to understand the reason why that can be. But also, more importantly, it helps us understand what we're meant to do in our work. That God's Word actually commands us. It actually gives us an example of what work is supposed to be and what it is meant to be for us and how we are to be faithful in that work. If you'll turn in your Bibles, open it up to the very beginning. To Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So you have here in Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation account. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. So in the beginning, God created. And then you have that account. For six days, God created things. He did things for six days. And we know that what he did for six days was work. Because if you turn with me now to chapter 2. I just like to hear pages turning. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, there's some key words that stand out in those verses, and they tell us what God did for six days. But to me, those key words that stand out to you now is work. And the reason it stands out to you now is because that's the topic of our conversation. But for me in the past, when I read that and I think about what stands out in that verse, what stands out in that verse has always been to me the day and the fact that God rested. And that's been an example for us. And the importance of that day cannot be underestimated because you get to later on in Exodus, you get the law, you get the Ten Commandments, and the Fourth Commandments is keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day holy. He says specifically in that, for six days you shall labor and you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. This is a commandment. If you break this commandment, the penalty of that breaking of that commandment is death. So we place the importance, the emphasis is certainly on a day, but what we do because we have this in the law we don't look at what God did for the majority of his time in creation. We take one day, we can't break this law, we're supposed to put it in this box over here because we want to uphold the law, but we negate all the goodness that God did for the first six days of creation. The vast majority of God's time in creation centered around work. And what, does, what is God's word? What does Genesis 1 say over and over and over after each day that it was good? The work that God did in creation for six days was good. It wasn't, it wasn't this compartment that we dread for the most part, that we're tired of doing. I'm tired of getting up. I'm tired of toiling and doing this. No, it was good. But God set forth an example for us, yes, in the seventh day to rest from that work, 
And the good thing is, is we have all this, after all the millennia that comes and Jesus comes, he's now our Sabbath rest, so we can rest in Jesus any day. And we don't have to have a day set apart, but we do set apart a day within our life to rest. But we neglect what it means to work and the goodness of that work and the example that God gives us in that work. Now, God, did he need to rest? No, he didn't need to rest. But he did that to give us the example where we have to look at the work. But not only that, God in his goodness, he didn't just create mankind and set mankind apart, right? He creates mankind in his own image, right? In character, in likeness, the essence of him. So if God worked for seven days, he created us then to do work. And the first command in your Bible, what is it? The first command that's stated is in chapter 1, that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the first stated command, but that's not the first thing that God told mankind to do. Genesis chapter 1 gives the creation account. Genesis chapter 2 expands on what was given in chapter 1. But you see chronologically, if you look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, you see the first thing that God told man to do. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? to work it, and to keep it. And it is then later, after that, you see in verse 18, he's going to find a helper fit for him. And he doesn't find a helper fit for him. He brings all the animals in front of Adam, and he names them all. He begins to do the work of keeping all of this, but none of them was fit for him. So then he puts him asleep, pulls the rib out, fashions a woman. And then you have now Adam saying, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she came out of, or she was taken out of a man. And now you have this suitable helper fit for him to help him in the work that God designed him and put him to do. Remember his purpose. His purpose is to glorify and exalt God in the goodness of creation. This is perfection. The only thing that was not good in creation was for man to be alone. God rectified that in making woman a helper to do the work. And now all of a sudden, everything in creation is good. Now imagine what that work would be like. You think Adam sweated? You think he stunk? Do you sweated? Is that a thing? But do you, th do you think he had blisters? Do you think his back got sore? I don't think any of that. I can't really imagine what that work would really be like. If, if it's perfection, right? I, mean, I, can't, I can't wrap my mind around what work would actually look like in the garden that God created that is absolutely perfect in every way. There's no weeds. Come on. But he did work, and it was good. But then something happens. Our created purpose is to glorify and exalt God and to do work in that manner that, grows, that goes back to him in what we do with our hands, whatever that may be. But then something happens. In Genesis chapter 3, the creation account, it moves quickly. It moves quickly. But in chapter 3, sin enters the world. And it taints and breaks apart all the goodness that God created. But did it remove the command or commands? The first thing that mankind was told to do was to keep the garden. Was to, he was put in the garden. He was to work it and to keep it. And then the second thing was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's the two things that we were responsible for in perfection, in creation. Two things. That's it. Work it in the gloriousness of what that is. Be fruitful and multiply. 
But those commands are not removed when the fall happens. But difficulty is interjected in it because of that sin. And see what happens. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The command is still there, but you are now going to labor in that work. You're going to labor in doing the thing that I have told you to do. To the man, he says in verse 17, and to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. He says in pain now you're going to labor in the work that I have set forth for you to do. Creation is going to now work against you. Thorns and thistles are going to come up. You think the soil is enjoying thorns and thistles bursting out of it? No, it's not. But that's the result. That's the consequence. He says it clearly. Because of this, because of what you did, cursed now is the ground. Cursed is the creation. And you're now to labor in the work that you're to do. You're to labor in the fruitfulness that I've commanded you to be. And it's difficult. But the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. Your goodness is running after me and running after me and running after me at the onset as quickly as we failed, as quickly he responds. And he sets forth a plan in Genesis 15 between telling the woman, this is your problem now because of what you've done, and telling the man, this is your problem now because of what you've done. Smack dab in the middle of those two consequences is the freedom and the restoration promise in verses 15. I don't have this for you, but he says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's saying is there's going to be a time to come where there's going to be an offspring from a woman, not from the seed of Adam, but the, but from a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit and he is going to crush your head. That is the salvation promise in Jesus right there between the consequence for the woman, consequence for the man, the promise of Jesus. And he comes, and as Tom Nelson says in his book, Work Matters, he says that Jesus came to restore the worker, the work, and the workplace. So that when we get over here and we have this compartment of our lives, we don't have to dread everything we do. If we understand and recall our purpose and what we're created for, that it's for God to glorify and exalt God, what we do here is a means by which we're faithful to Him and faithful in that, it frees us up in many ways. Does it make our situation easier? Absolutely not. There is going to be difficult. There's thorns, there's thistles that are going to labor in it. The command still remains the same and the purpose is still the same. How we do that matters though. And our failure, church, is we put this here on Monday through Friday and we operate in such a way that is a mockery to this. How do we quit allowing this to bleed into days and push back and forth over seasons of our life and begin to look at the frame and put our entire life in the middle of that? Number one way to do that, church, it's the church answer. I love the church answer. You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. When you read God's word, we can read the Old Testament of Jesus and you get, you get indirect references to Jesus as the angel of the Lord. Right? He goes before the people. 
You know, he's, he's the Messiah to come. He's spoken of, of what's going to come. And in the New Testament, when he comes, how does he come? When do we first see Jesus? We see him as a baby. Right? Luke chapter 2, then we see him as a boy, around 12 years old. He's going to the temple. His parents forget him. How do you forget the Son of God? I don't know, but they did it. Many of you may relate. I actually got left at Ryan's one time in Mesquite. But that was actually not by my parents. But anyways, another story. You can ask me about it later. But we see him as a boy at 12 years old. And then the next time we see Jesus is when he is a man, probably 30 years old, and he's going to be baptized. Then we see three years of ministry of Jesus' life, ministry and the work of ministry that he does. And then we see him as Savior on a cross. Then we see him as the risen King and Lord of our lives, ascending to the Father where he presently sits interceding on our behalf. That's, that's where we see Jesus. But there's a big picture and a big portion, the majority of Jesus' life. If, the, if we see him at 12 years old in the temple and we don't see him again until he's 30-something years old getting baptized, where's that, what is that math on that? Where's, that? where's that 20 years? 20 years of Jesus' life, the majority of his life, what is he doing? Well, he was in a carpenter's workshop. He was known to be that, known to be a carpenter. At one point in time, the Pharisee says, isn't this the carpenter when he's in Nazareth? But he understands. He worked for the majority of his life. He knew what it was like to deal with customers, to deal with unhappy customers. He knew what it was like to get splinters, to get calluses. He probably hit his fingers a time or two with the hammer, and he probably responded a lot better than what we did because, you know, he's perfect. <laughs> But he understands those things. He understands a broken piece of wood or a bent piece of wood. He understands deadlines. He understands tired. He understands a sore back. He understands get up, go to work, go home. When I think of, of, of Hebrews chapter 14, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we have, we are, yet without sin. When I think of that, that temptation, and I, in the past I've thought about that temptation, I go to the next story I know of in the Bible where it talks about Jesus being tempted. And that's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry for 40 days in the, in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. And somehow in my mind, everything that human mankind has ever been tempted with, Satan throws into 40 days and throws it on Jesus right there. But I don't think that's the case now. When I think about the majority of Jesus' life doing work, and living life, interacting with his creation, his people. He's experiencing every temptation we do, yet he is without sin. So there's our example. When we think about this area of our life, there's our, how do, how do I deal? How do I maintain? How do I deal with this customer? How do I deal with this person? How do I deal with this deadline? How do I deal with this brokenness or this burn that? How do I deal? I'll look to Jesus and how he may have dealt with it. But because of what he did, he was without sin and perfect and sets forth that example, glorifying God in all that he does, then the second part of that verse is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, get this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What the writer of Hebrews is saying right there, he says, Jesus is it. He understands wholly what we're going through as it pertains to our work, the dread that we can have of a Monday morning. He understands, but yet he endured it so that we may now, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace.
so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Whenever we, Lord, help me. I had a conversation with a gentleman after that first service. As he's leaving, he's like, man, that was on time for me. He said, I just confessed at Regen some of my struggle with work and how I dread it and how difficult it, is, difficult it is. But he said, I've learned to look to Jesus, to just simply ask him for help in a time of need. And his grace is there. So how do we remain faithful in the workplace? We draw near to the throne of grace. David Platt says, said it like this. He said, the more we look to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. Church, that is, that's the church answer. That's it. The more we look to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. We say it often. We cannot say it enough here at Stone Point Church. It's to be in the word of God, to abide daily with him. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing His word is clear when we get to this compartment of our life that we have created so that we can maintain this, so we can have a little bit of that. When we get here and it is difficult, if we connect to the vine, we're daily connecting to that vine, we will bear fruit in this place so that we can fulfill the purpose we were created for is to exalt and glorify God among all peoples and among all nations. That begins with our work and where we're currently at and how we are serving there. But work also is our provision. I love this aspect of it whenever I think about this way of work and my work. I have the blessing of, of, of working vocationally for the church. That does not lessen the impact or the difficulty of what it is that I do from, a day, from day to day. It's not easy being in ministry in many ways. And it's work nonetheless. But our work is a provision. And it's not just a provision for ourselves. Remember, if we're not careful, we'll do work simply to get paid so we can provide for this time right here. But it's also the means with which God provides for people. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. You know, he says, Look at, he says, Look at the birds. They don't store away in barns. They're not lazy. But God provides for them. How much more will he provide for you, he says. Look at the grass of the field and how they're ordained. If God clothes the grass of the field and he feeds the birds there, how much more will he feed and clothe you? But let me ask you this. This morning, did you get up and knit those clothes together before you came here? And if you did, right on, man. (laughs) Would you make me a shirt? But no, you didn't. Somebody somewhere toiled and labored and did work to produce those clothes that you have on right now so that you may be clothed. You didn't, cre- you didn't, you didn't cook, make, and process every food item that's in your refrigerator or your pantry at home. Someone else worked diligently day in and day out to make that food, package that food, send that, put that on a truck, send it to the grocery store. Somebody put that on a shelf so that you could come, you could take that and go home. That's God's provision for you and me, and he does that through people and the work of people. That's God's means of provision for everyone. God did not have to include Adam in the work and tending to the garden. He didn't have to, but it's God using and allowing his creation to join him in what he's doing. 
And if you think of a child and you give a task to a child, you know, say you're going camping, you know, and, 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 and you've gone camping and you got your boy here and you're going to make this fire and it's going to be cold and you tell him, hey, I need you to be in charge of this fire. This fire is your responsibility. If this fire goes out, you know, it's going to get really cold. We're probably going to, we might freeze to death. So this is yours. Now he knows he's not going to freeze to death. He knows the boy's not going to freeze to death. He's not going to let him freeze to death, but he includes him in it. He said, I want you to be responsible for this. This is your task. Yeah, dad, man, I got this. I got it. I'll keep the fire going. So that he's being a part of the experience. He's being a part of the trip. He's a part of the family. That's God doing this here. When it comes to our work and God's provision, he's including us in how he provides for his people in many different ways. And we get to include him and be joined in that. Matthew 14 is a fantastic example of this. Read this with me. Starting in verse 15, this is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and we'll see here in just a second that it's not just Jesus. But now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is, the, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So the disciples telling Jesus and trying to dictate what he does, hey, would you send them away and so they can buy food because surely they're hungry. And Jesus responds, he says, but Jesus said, they need not go away. Give them something to eat. What? How do they respond? And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. There's 12 of them. And from another gospel account, it's not even theirs. But all of a sudden, they've got it. But anyways. But we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And here's what Jesus does. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. See how he includes the Father and what he's doing? Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. Did Jesus need the disciples in this miracle? He's the son of God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Not only did, I mean, he, he does the blessing. He does what he does. He multiplied the bread and the fish, but he includes the disciples. He gives it to them. He says, you feed them. Now you're a disciple and you've got this basket and you're giving it out to 5,000 people, but miraculously, it's not ending. God didn't have to include them in this miracle. But for me, when I look at the story and I really think through it, there is no other reason to me, in my belief, there's no reason for Jesus to include the disciples in this miracle other than to grow them in their faithfulness to him. To understand, to see clearly who he is, what he can do, what he will do, and the lengths that he will go to do it, and who he will use to do that. This is God's provision for the world, and he does it through his creation meant to glorify and exalt him. And it all pertains around work that we're created to do. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says this way, he says this, he says, uh, um, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you get that? The profoundness of that sentence right there is that we are his workmanship. God did work in creating us, in creation. As we were knitted together in our mother's womb, he's doing work. We're his workmanship. 
And then he created in Christ Jesus for then good works. So he works to create us and make us, and then he creates us for work that we are meant to do, which prepared beforehand that we should walk in. I mean, eternity passed. Before anything came to be, God laid forth a plan for you and for me to do work on his behalf to glorify and exalt him to provide for his creation. Do you see the picture of how awesome it is when we really think about this area of our life? This is where we spend the majority of our life, but we vastly lessen the impact of where we're at with this time and what we do for kingdom purposes with that time. It is by faith that we are saved, not by works. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Ephesians 2. But we're saved by faith for work. Our faith and our work have always and will always be inextricably tied together. You can never separate the two. To separate the two is for one of them to die. So now for the rest of our time, let's get practical if we can. What shall we do with all of that? What does that really mean? Well, a couple things. One, we need to avoid oversimplifying this. Avoid oversimplifying it because it can be very difficult. Because I mean, there are a lot of occupations. There are a lot of jobs represented in this room right now. But think about it for a minute. If you're a plumber, you may ask, all right, Cody, that sounds great, but how do I plumb like a Christian would plumb? You know, don't... It's not have any cracks. I mean. <laughs> I mean leaks. Come on, guys. But I mean, but realistically, if if you're a hairdresser or you're a barber, how do I cut hair the Christian way? Like, well, don't make them bleed. I don't, I don't know. If you're an electrician, how do how do I pull wire and hire a wire house the Christian way? If, I bake, if you bake bread, how do I bake the Christian way? There's, there's not much difference. The ingredients are the same. You're not going to bake bread much different than an atheist. Let's make it taste good. Tim Keller would say, finish to that point. If you start something as part of your work, complete your work. But the manner in which you do that work in many occupations doesn't really change. So what do we do? It's just the manner and it's the way in which you do that work, how you approach that work, what's your attitude in that work? How do you deal with people in that work? How do you deal when things are bad, whenever deadlines are missed, whenever deadlines are approaching, whenever things break, whenever things go wrong? If you make pizzas and your oven goes out, how you respond in that, those things matter. But now conversely, remember we can't, don't, be careful not to oversimplify this. If you're a teacher, or you're a coach? Your Christianity, your Christian values vastly influence the way in which you influence the lives of your students. It's much different when you think of how you impact lives in that way. But in the business world, if your goal is money, maintaining solvency, or a bottom line, or trying to destroy the competition, you're getting things out of place. So how do you do that the Christian way? 
Well, the second thing that you should do is you should ask yourself, we should all be asking ourselves daily, how does Christ matter to my work? Because it most assuredly matters. How we view Christ and how he can impact what we do and how we impact other people in our job. And it's all different. It can all be difficult in many ways. But ultimately, if we put Christ at the center of it, at the head of it, how does he matter in what I do how does he matter in this response? Or how, do he, how does he matter in this circumstance? That's the way you do it in the Christian way, in a way that would honor him and glorify him. If what you're doing in this compartment of your life is not glorifying to God, if it's not exalting him, if it's actually a detriment to the gospel and his name and your faith as a Christian, don't do that. Simply enough. But our problem is we've been about this on a Sunday. We've taught people to be faithful on a Sunday. Come here, be faithful on a Sunday. But we don't know how to be faithful on Monday. But we need to realize that, let's not let this bleed. Let's just put ourselves in that frame of glorifying God and exalting Him in whatever we do. Community helps this. If you're ever unsure of what you should do, yes, look to Jesus, consider his word. But three things that are always present whenever change happens, three things is one is God's spirit, his word, and his people. I say that often. When those three things are present in a circumstance, in a decision, you are heading in the right direction. And that will help you. That's why community matters greatly in the life of a believer as we approach our work. But to wrap up here, Colossians 1, read this with me in verse 15 through 18. He, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent. Every aspect of our lives, from the moment we wake up to the moment we lay our head, everything he is to be preeminent in our lives. For the Christian, there's not an alternative. Everything is secondary to that end, that he may be preeminent. In everything that we do. First Peter 2 9. Peter tells us, he tells us all. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's a you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen and amen and amen and amen and amen. But he says, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are to declare his excellencies. Tim Keller points this out wonderfully. He says that, that to proclaim or to declare, that's the work of a prophet. And he says this, he says, by the power of the gospel, I call you to think like a prophet, to serve like a priest, and to plan like a king. We declare as a prophet declares Priesthood is priest. 
royal priesthood as king, he says to think like a prophet, serve like a priest, and plan like a king. And what he means is when you get to that instance in your work, how do I respond in this? You think like a prophet. How does Christ matter to this? How does Christ matter to what I'm currently doing, what I'm going to do? How does Christ matter for what my boss wants me to do? I feel that that is wrong. I feel that I should not do that. How does Christ matter to that? It matters greatly how you do that. So you think like a prophet, but then you serve like a priest. You serve humbly. You seek to put others' interests before your own. Yeah, you want that promotion. I get you want that promotion, but who are you going to undercut to get it? And how does that honor the Lord? It doesn't. So you serve. And you serve diligently when people are looking, but more importantly, you serve when people are not looking. Even for myself. I can sit over here in my room and do work, and I can easily stray my mind and waste time when no one is looking. And that does not honor and glorify the Lord. We should all be so careful, but serve like a priest. And he says, think and plan like a king. What he means by that is be bold, be courageous. When that point comes, when it's difficulty, and I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond, my job is on the line in how I respond or what I do in this because I'm being told to do this. He says, be courageous and be bold like a king. How does Christ matter? He matters greatly. And I'm not saying you should go quit your job, but I'm saying it matters how you respond in that job. And we should be so willing to hold to that created purpose and glorifying and exalting him. And if that means losing your job, I would say praise the Lord. He's got provision for you. The difficulty remains. The difficulty will always be there. Thorns and thistles will be there. Cursed is the ground, church. We cannot negate the difficulty, but that does not change the purpose. And I'll close with this, and I think this is a fantastic um, illustration for where we should be. I don't have this for you on the screen, so I'm just going to read it for you. But C.E. McCartney says this. He says, between an airplane and every other form of locomotion and and transportation, there is one great contrast. He says, the horse and the wagon, the automobile, the bicycle, the locomotive, the speedboat, and the great battleship, all can come to a standstill without danger. And they can all reverse their engines or their power and go back. But there's no reverse about the engine of an airplane. It cannot back up. It dare not stand still. If it loses its momentum and forward drives, then it crashes. The only safety for the airplane is in its forward and upward motion. The only safe direction for the Christian is to take is forward and upward. If he stops, if he begins to slip or go backwards, that moment he is in danger. From the moment we wake up to the moment we lay our head, from the moment we were born to the moment we die, and then thereafter, church, we are meant to be moving forward and upward to the call that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Let's not take off on a Sunday, just to crash on a Monday. Because that makes a mockery of what we're doing on a Sunday. See the picture? May we forever be moving forward 
and upward and being faithful, not in compartments in our life, but being faithful in our life, but being faithful in the workplace where we spend the majority of our lives. Amen? Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for including us in your work. I thank you for the task that you lay forth before us. Lord, no matter how difficult it can be, Lord, I thank you for it. Because otherwise, what are, what are we doing? If I really think about it, Lord, if I live for anything other than you, what is that just for myself and how selfish I can be? Lord, would you free me up from the burden of trying to do me better? When all I have to do is trust you and be faithful to you to make me better, to make me more like you who is perfect in every way, Lord. And Lord, as that applies to our work, God, I pray that you just help us. Help us to look to you. Help us to find ways, Lord, to remember you and to put you in the middle of our work. To seek how you matter in each and every decision, Lord to the end of glorifying and exalting you among all nations and among all peoples. To fulfill the mission for which you've called us, Lord, and that begins in our work and in our workplace, Lord. For the perfection that you designed, Lord, and the task that you have given us, whatever that may be, Lord, I pray that we walk in it, but let us, let us continue moving forward. We don't have a Monday faith or, or, or Sunday faith, but we have a Monday worship as well. As we say that when we leave this place, Lord, that we would have a great week of worship. May we have a great week of faithfulness as we do the task that you have laid for us to do, as we provide for the needs of your people and your creation to glorify and honor and exalt your name above all names. May we be found faithful, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray.